0: We are continuing in our series on practicing simplicity or biblical minimalism. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6, verse 19, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, early in Jesus' ministry, as he begins to gain popularity and the crowds begin to follow him, he goes up on a mountainside to teach. And with the disciples at his feet and the crowds. Uh, behind them, he proceeds to teach them about the inbreaking kingdom of God, and uh, this teaching has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which, in my mind, is just a fancy way of saying the teaching on a on a hill or teaching on a mountain, uh, and it has become uh, the most influential teaching in all of human history, and we see its impact particularly on the Western world, but it is captured here in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, and we, uh, about 25% of this teaching is on uh, money, wealth, possessions, physical stuff how we relate to the physical world. And though this teaching as a whole has shaped the Western world in ways that we cannot even begin to understand over the millennia, uh, what we'll see in a moment is that the 25% that's on wealth and possessions uh, still slams against the prevailing Western worldview. Uh, We pick up in Matthew 6, verse 19. This is what it says. These are the words of Jesus. let's pray. Jesus, we come before you now as your redeemed people, as your disciples, as the one whom, as the ones that you have chosen, that you've called by name, that you've freed uh, through your love and grace and sacrifice, and we come before you uh, as students would before a teacher. We come to sit at your feet Uh, the way the first disciples did. We recognize that you are God, that you are the ultimate uh, authority on everything uh, that it is to be human. And we give you permission, Lord, this morning to tell us where the good life is found. Uh, Without knowing it, we've given uh, that permission away, uh, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. They, They gave permission to Satan to define the good life instead of you. Uh, and we have a similar struggle that we are engaged in day out and uh, day in and day out. There's a war being waged uh, for our hearts, souls, minds, attention, adoration. Uh, come and speak to us now, Lord. Bring freedom in this place for your glory and in your name. Amen. The average American household, has 300,000 items in it. By the numbers, it would seem that we love to store up for ourselves treasures on earth. And what we often fail to recognize is that every single item that we own costs us something. There is the obvious cost, uh, the cost that any consumer can perceive, And that is the price tag, uh, the cost of bringing it home. But there is another cost which very few people perceive, and that is the ongoing cost of owning an item. It's the uh, time, attention, money, even adoration uh, that we give to each item that we own. Uh, each and every one of them adds weight to our lives, uh, adds a mental clutter, emotional clutter, a distraction, and each one makes its demands upon us. And there are the obvious demands that we can pick up very easily, like the uh, costs and burdens of home ownership, right? That's something that demands a lot from us. Uh, I I recently read that the average cost of owning a car in America is $8,000 a year per vehicle every year. Uh, And that's in gas, in insurance, in oil changes, in maintenance, in the depreciation of the value of the car. Uh, And the bigger the house, the more it will demand from you. The fancier the car, uh, the more it will cost you over time. Uh, But what is obviously true of owning cars or homes becomes much less obvious with the other 299,000-some items that we own. Uh, But it's buried right here in the teachings of Jesus in this simple but profound statement. He says, "...where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." And our treasure can be thought of or defined in several different ways. Uh, It can be uh, anything that we give our time, money, and attention to, uh, anything that we trust in and cling to, or simply anything that you physically store up for yourself on earth. Uh, And notice that Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, It's not that your heart might be tempted to be there or that your heart is in danger of being there. He says, no, 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 your heart will follow your treasure. It's like gravity. The earth exerts a gravitational pull, your body follows. Your treasure exerts a gravitational pull, your heart will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we say this, we see this playing out on all sorts of uh, levels in our lives. In fact, there's so many different aspects to this issue uh, that I don't have time to unpack all of it this morning. But we'll tackle a few uh, aspects or um, pieces to this problem. And I think the the first aspect. I want to mention of our treasure problem is our attention or our awareness. In the words of John Mark, he says, What you give your attention to is the person you become. Uh, put another way, the mind is the porthole to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you give your attention to. Now, cue the 300,000 items and counting. Every single item requires time, energy, money, and attention. Uh, We think about them. Uh, We dream of owning them, we research, we shop, we compare, and we purchase, and that all happens before we even bring it in the door. Once it's here, it requires us to interact with it, uh, to use it, to clean it, to organize it, to reorganize it, to clean it again, to reorganize it again, to fix it when it's broken, to insure it if it's expensive, and to dispose of it when it's done. When it comes to attention and awareness, uh, studies show that every time we enter a cluttered room, uh, our minds, our awareness, our attention is actually instantly pulled in a thousand different directions. We have to engage with, interact with each and every item in the room, if only for the briefest of seconds. And if we're just talking about uh, a pair of nail clippers and a comb, uh, then it's not a big deal. But the cumulative effect uh, of researching, shopping, buying, using, organizing, and maintaining 300,000 items can consume our lives if we let it. It can take all of our attention. Our hearts, our souls, our entire lives can be spent and consumed on our stuff as if it were the purpose of our lives. Uh, You see, we are actually at risk of storing up for ourselves uh, treasures on earth. Uh, We are at risk of our hearts following the wrong treasure to the wrong place. We are at risk, in the words of Jesus, of gaining the whole world and losing our soul in the process. Uh, Just think of how much of our mental, emotional bandwidth is spent on our stuff and it drives the deep heart question, do I own my stuff or does my stuff own me? That's one aspect of our treasure problem, our attention, our awareness, Second, if you're taking notes, is the problem of idolatry. It's a problem of adoration or trust or worship. Uh, If you have 300,000 crappy items in your home, you will be distracted into oblivion. Uh, your, Your life can still be hijacked by those things that you've stored up for yourself. But if you have thousands upon thousands of nice items then the problem can actually become even more acute. Because remember that your treasure is anything that you uh, trust in and cling to, anything that you give your adoration to, uh, in in a sense, what you worship. If all of your treasure uh, is in heaven and you trust, cling to, worship Jesus, you're going to be in great shape. But we all know the problem. Uh, We all know uh, the ability uh, of physical stuff to compete for our adoration, to compete for our trust, uh, to to become the thing that we cling to in place of God. We can come to depend more on what we own for our sense of security, for our sense of identity uh, than we do on God. Um, And and we can come to this place where we say, hey, my my sense of identity, my sense of who I am is no longer just formed by Christ and his kingdom. It's no longer just formed by who God says I am. It's actually now formed uh, through what I consume, through what I own. That then comes to define my worth, my value, uh, my, my, my sense of joy in life, my sense of security. Who am I? apart from my stuff? Many of us in the Western world struggle to answer that question. Our our hearts can become captured and formed and shaped by the things that we own, or even the things we have yet to own. Uh, Dave Ramsey says it this way. He says, anytime you attach your happiness to a consumable good, you're idolizing it. If only I had that house, I'd be happy. If we lived in that neighborhood, I'd be happy. If I had those clothes, that phone, that stuff, then I would be happy. That means that you've made an idol out of that thing. And your heart will follow your treasure. We idolize our stuff. Next, if you're taking notes, the third issue with our treasure problem is that our treasure will fail us. Sooner or later, your idols will be exposed as idols, as things that you should not have trusted in. Uh, And it's amazing how mad we get at God when this happens. If you store up for yourselves treasures on earth, there will come a day, Jesus says, when moths and rusts start claiming it. Uh, when thieves and, and recession and unemployment break in and steal. And, and we realize in that moment, I put stock in the wrong things. I worship the wrong things. I look to the wrong things for my sense of security. Uh, we stored up treasure in the wrong place. And what Jesus is trying to impress on his disciples uh, is that objectively speaking, this world is a silly place to store treasure. It it just doesn't work. It, it just doesn't last. He says, it is actually in your best interest to store up treasure, eternal reward in the kingdom of heaven. Where, where moths and vermin and rust cannot break in, where thieves cannot break in and steal. This is objectively, in a sense, he's saying, hey, you, you should, you can, you should actually live your lives for treasure. You just have to think about what's the smartest treasure to live for. The, the, the type that rusts and breaks and falls apart and ends up in a landfill? Or, or, or the treasure, the eternal reward that will, that will never wear out, that no one can take from you. You won't be two minutes into eternity before you've forgotten about all that you've left behind. So what's a better place to store treasure? And that brings us to our fourth and final problem. You can't take it with you. You have to leave it behind. You have no choice. Psalm 39 says, In vain humanity rushes about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. You can amass the greatest treasure in human history, but you cannot take a penny of it with you. And I don't know about you, but when I stand before God and give an account of my life, I want more to point to than all of the stuff that I accumulated and cared for in my middle-class American life. It's, that, that doesn't mean anything to God. That, that's not worth anything in His kingdom. Look what I accumulated. Look what I amassed. Look how well I cared for all of my stuff. I think we will be shocked in that moment to realize just how little God cares. And in fact, we will lament the fact that we had our eyes set on the wrong things. Instead, Jesus says, before you die and stand before God, think about your eyes or what you have an eye for. The eye is the lamp of the body, he says. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, uh, this whole idea of a healthy eye or a good eye or whatever it says in your translation was an idiom in the first century that we don't have today. In the first century, if you had a good eye or a healthy eye, it meant two things. Uh, First off, it meant that you were living your life with a high degree of intentionality, that you had really thought things through, that you knew what was important and what was trivial, that you were not distracted by all uh, that glitters in this world, but you had your eyes set, you had a single eye for God and his kingdom. And because of that, then the second thing would be true, and that's that you were open-handed with your possessions, that you were generous to the poor. So if I were to compliment someone and say, I, you have, I really admire you, you have a good eye, you have a healthy eye. Well, in the first century, that would mean you, you have an eye for the right things, and then correspondingly, you have a loose grip on the things of this world. You are generous with those in need. Uh, and and if, um, if you have a bad eye, or some of your translations say an evil eye, then the reverse is true. You, you have, your eye is set on, on all that, that glitters in this world that attracts your attention. And as a result, you've closed your fist around the physical possessions of this world. You are stingy with the poor. So if you have a a good eye and and everything that's implicated with that, if you have a good eye and you're open-handed and you're rightly related to physical possessions and material wealth, then your whole body will be full of light. In in other words, the way you relate to the physical material world is going to affect all of your life. If If you have a good eye, you will be filled with light. If you have a bad eye... If you've fallen for sort of the, the consumeristic lies of this world, your whole body will be filled with darkness. It will fill all of you, and if your version of the good life of what is light has actually been shaped by four thousand advertisements a day and a materialistic, uh, consumption-based uh, accumulation of wealth, American dream, you'll say that—that's the story I buy. That is light. And as I accumulate, I just feel the light of living in that dream. He said, no, 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 that's actually the worst darkness. You have actually mistaken what is dark and what is light. So, So if you're living for the wrong narrative, for the wrong dream, if your eye is set on the wrong thing, it will affect all of you. He's saying your heart at that point is being drawn to the wrong. Your treasure is in the wrong place. Instead, we follow the invitation of Jesus to live the type of life that he lived, not one of darkness and confusion and bondage and dissatisfaction, not a life of consumerism, uh, which is a heavy burden to bear. Instead, Jesus says, come and follow me. Live as I live and, quote, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke or my teaching or my way of life is easy and my burden is light. We follow the crucified Messiah into a life of freedom. We follow the one who was born in a borrowed stable and buried in a borrowed tomb. The one who showed us how to enjoy the good things that God provides for us in this life without coveting and consuming and collecting as if it were the point of our lives. We follow the one who had more joy than any of us and who owned far less than we do in The process, the one who had a single eye, a healthy eye, who lived intentionally and single mindedly for God and his kingdom. He didn't gather and store, he didn't collect and covet, but he had everything that he needed from the moment he was born until the moment that he died. We follow the one who was homeless by choice. He could have had a house, or several of them, if he had wanted that. Apparently, he didn't want one. And now we are faced with the reality of being followers of Jesus in a world of materialistic consumption and accumulation, where the powers that be have trained us to find our identity in our stuff. And we are faced with the stunning question, what would Jesus do if he were me? If he had been born the year that I was born, if he was my gender, my age, had my means, if he was a college student at Gonzaga, if he was a middle-class mom with three kids, if he was an empty nester living in North Spokane, how would he live what would he do? And for the purpose of the series, what would he own? Our lives are experiments in answering that question. What would Jesus do if he were me? So where do we go from here? Do we give up all of our possessions? Do we commit to only owning crappy stuff so that we don't idolize it? And do we, do we sell all of our homes and just wander the streets of Spokane? No. We have to work out the teachings of Jesus in our time, place, and context. And it's going to look different for each and every one of us But remember that Jesus is wanting us to experience more freedom, not less. He wants us to experience more joy, not less. He wants us to experience more of the kingdom of God, not less. The enemy comes to steal, kill, destroy, distract, confuse. Not so with me, Jesus says. He says, I came that you might have life and life abundant. So where do we start? A few practical steps we can take moving forward. Uh, As we close, number one, uh, de-own as much as you can. Uh, Most of the 300,000 items in our homes, if we're honest, are not adding value to our lives. They are actually detracting from our lives, distracting, splintering, cluttering, fragmenting, pulling the best of our time, tension, and awareness. So get rid of stuff. Most of us could get rid of 70% of the stuff that we own, and we would be lighter and more joyful than we are right now. So start somewhere and start de owning. Uh, never underestimate the value of getting rid of stuff that you don't truly value or need number two shift your buying habits Uh, don't impulse buy spur of the moment Uh, don't buy to be happy Uh, once you've determined to buy something take a deep breath give it an hour give it a day give it a week in one of the, the minimalism books that we've made available, the recommendation was, if you truly believe that you need something, then hit the pause button and give it a week of prayer. Just say, Lord, if I really need this, would you provide it for me? And, and like, let those things sink in, wrestle through that, not in any sort of guilt way, but, but just slow down and see if a day later or a week later, you even want that thing anymore. It's amazing how often we, get, we a week goes by and we say, I don't even want that. I don't even know why I was ready to do uh, the, the one-click buy on Amazon. Like, I, I, I don't need that thing. If you can uh, shift your buying habits, if you can uh, break your uh, addiction to shopping, it is a difficult thing to do, but the payoff is worth it. Uh, ladies, The average woman in America spends eight years' worth of time shopping over the course of their lifetime, which means if you can break or change your addiction to shopping, you can potentially get back almost a decade of pure time over your lifetime, which is pretty exciting. Uh, As part of shifting your buying habits, uh, another thing that's very helpful for many people is doing a temporary fast. For me, I wasn't addicted to clothes, I was addicted to Amazon. So I had to take 30 days and not buy anything on Amazon. And you will laugh at how difficult that was for me, just to go 30 days and just, I, don't, I have everything I need, I don't need to buy this. If you can go 30 days, it will change everything going forward. The six months since I did that have been completely different than the six months before. Um, so figure out what's gonna work best for you but to commit to shifting your buying habits. Uh, Number three, uh, borrow instead of own. Uh, Don't feel like you have to own stuff in order to enjoy it. I think that's a very American consumer idea that's been sort of drilled into our minds. I carry that. I'll confess that. Uh, But when we open the Bible and we look at the church in Acts, it said that they held everything in common. Um, And anything I have, I freely share with you. Anything you have, you freely share with me. And everyone's needs were met through that process. If you need to borrow a a pressure washer or a circular saw or a moped or five kayaks, you don't have to buy that stuff. I have access to those things. Just borrow them whenever you want, as much as you want. Uh, And as we do that and we learn to share of each other's lives, it actually relieves us of the need To own 300,000 plus things. I don't have to own it in order to enjoy it. Let's share what we have. And finally, uh, your challenge for this week is to give away one of your treasures. What I want you to do sometime through the course of this week is to take an item from your home, hold it in your hand, and say, has this thing become a treasure to me? Is this thing competing with God? Sort of my mental, spiritual, soul level space. Have I I come to treasure it in an unhealthy way? And if the answer is yes, we're talking about one item here. I want you to give that item away. And there's no sense in protecting that item by claiming that it's not one of your treasures. Because guess what? If it's not one of your treasures, you can give it away. Okay? So that's the challenge. De-own what you can, shift the way that you shop and think about consumerism, borrow instead of own, and give away one of your treasures this week. Uh, As we close, a gentle reminder, as the scriptures say, you brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing from it. Remember that Jesus shows us the way to greater and greater life, to a more abundant life. Uh, And remember that you can store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Like God's given you the time, will, ability to do that. So if that's what you want to do, you can do it. You can store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You can attempt to serve two masters. You can allow your eyes to become unhealthy over time, but in the end, you are the one who will live to regret it. Don't mislive. Don't waste your life. Let's wake up now in the middle of our lives so that we can stand before Jesus in the end and hear, well done, good And faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we calm our hearts and minds now, um, and we just sense you coming to us in this place in your mercy, Lord. You're so patient, you're so kind. You don't put anything ill-fitting on us, but gently in your own way, you invite us into greater and greater life. And I think of so many times over the last year as I have gone through this journey and continue to go through this journey where I found myself just clinging to things, kind of white-knuckled, I cannot let go of this. And I can't think of a time where you ever pried something out of my hand, but you came alongside and you whispered and you invited and, and you spoke. It is your kindness that invites us to change. It's your kindness that invites us to open up. And so, Lord, we uh, just proclaim and announce, state out loud that we want to be a people who trust you And so often it just comes down to this. You revealed to me over and over again my lack of trust in your financial provision. I won't let go of these things. I can't let go of these things because I can't trust God for tomorrow. Come, Lord, and just start whispering to us in this place. As we we wait, as we worship, as we call on you, uh, each and every man, woman, and child in this place, Lord, we need to hear from you. Where is our treasure? Where's our trust? Where where are our hearts being pulled to? What what is the greatest threat to our discipleship? This hour, this, this day, this year. so, Lord, we, we look to you now. We thank you for the teachings of Jesus that we have, and we, and we thank you that the Holy Spirit is here to speak to each one in gentleness, in kindness. We stand in radical grace. We have nothing to earn before you, nothing to prove, but you want us to experience more life. You want us to know you, you want us to trust you. You want us to get at the end and look back over our lives and say, I have no regrets. I I don't regret the way I lived in God's good world. Wake us up, Lord, come speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.